that make anybody nervous? Anybody flinch? You sitting by somebody who flinched, feel free to point at them. Yeah, yeah. I, there's sometimes in life we don't want to be close, right? There's sometimes in life that things are just way too close. I was not looking for uh, a message illustration this week, but this on 81, I'm coming, I'm coming towards Loganville on 81, and somebody pulls out right in front of me. I'm trying not to say their gender so that I don't make anybody mad, but somebody pulls out right in front of me, just rolls into my lane. I think they were looking to the right, and it was clear on the right. Like Nobody was close on the right. I was really close coming from the left. And fortunately, I was able to swerve, and I gave them an extended honk, if you love Jesus, honk as I went by. Um, I did not say nor signal anything inappropriate. You would have been proud of me, but I did honk for a very long time as I went by this person. And then, you know how it is, for like the next 15 minutes, I'm replaying that moment. Like, I see the person's face, I see the side of the car, and then I'm thinking if they had been just a little bit faster, I couldn't have gone left, I would have had to go on right, and I'm not sure I could have gotten around them, and then I would have hit them, and then my car would have been totaled, then I'm thinking about car payments and insurance is going to go up. Like All of this I'm replaying in my mind for another 15 or 20 minutes, because you can just be too close when you're in traffic. You, you, you can get way too close, but we're not talking about traffic. Uh, we're, we're talking about being close to Jesus right now. Next week, we're going to start talking about being close to people. Close to Jesus, close to people. And um, before I mention anything else, several people commented in the first service that my sweater matches the logo. So <laughs> just let me just put that. I already know. You can, you can take a deep breath and relax the rest of the, the, the message. So... I didn't do that on purpose. Uh, traffic can be too close. Here's the problem spiritually, though. Often, we want to be close but not too close to Jesus, if we're honest. Right? We, we want to be close, but when Jesus pulls into our lane, we hit the brake and swerve to the left and, and, and want to get by him. When Jesus asks for something difficult, and that's what Jesus does sometimes, he, he makes hard ask of us sometimes. And our initial response can be, oh, I don't want to be that close. Like, I don't want to be crazy close to Jesus. I just want to be sort of close. I want to be kind of in with Jesus, arm's distance with Jesus. I don't want to be right on Jesus. But Maybe we should have called the first part of this series crash instead of close because what Jesus wants is he wants to crash into our lives. He wants to trade paint, right? He, he wants to remake us in the way that a dent remakes a car. Jesus wants to be fully a part of our life, not just close enough to us where we could swerve around when he makes a big ask. Because make no mistake, Jesus will get in your lane if you're trying to follow him. Okay, he, he will play chicken with you. He will pull out in front of your life and your decisions. And that's when we got to decide, all right, do I really want to be close to this Jesus? Or do I want to swerve around the really hard asks? Jesus is calling us close. 
We started this series last week in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus calls the, the disciples. Uh, let me just read a part of that again. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or some translations say, I will make you fishers of people. The point I want to make this morning is that Jesus' invitation to follow him is not a casual ask. It is not a casual let's hang out. That's what he's saying. Let's be together. Let's spend time together. Let's get close. But a part of that being close is you're going to change. Like I want to remake you in some ways. Not, not because you're not great and I don't love you and, and I, don't, I, I don't think you're worthy. It's not that. It's that I want to help remake you into who I've called you to be. And sometimes that means getting really, really close. And very often that means getting very, very uncomfortable. Not swerving around, not hitting the brakes, but allowing Jesus to crash into our lives in ways that leave us forever changed, forever different. The word most associated with the followers of Jesus, if there's a title, is the word disciple. He had 12 disciples, we say. We're supposed to be disciples of Jesus. We're supposed to make disciples, but this word disciple a disciple carried with it certain connotations. And, and on the one hand, it was, yes, you're a pupil, you're a follower, you're a learner. That's a part of what disciple means. But it means more than just a learner. It, it means that you're changing. You're taking on not just information. You're, cha- you're taking on the very characteristics of the person that you're following. You're becoming somebody different. You're looking different, sounding different, talking different, interacting with people differently. One definition of disciple worded it this way. A disciple is changing in your thought accompanied by your endeavor. Yes, you're thinking differently. Yes, you look at the world differently. But that different thinking and different worldview is resulting in you being different. Different. You acting different. Things changing about you. Um, we said last week that Paul uses the phrase that we have the mind of Christ. Our thoughts change. Our worldview. Our perspective. The way we see people. The way we see issues. Uh, the, the way we see the world gets reshaped as we're close to Jesus. But being a disciple means I let those change of thoughts result in a change of action. Anybody ever, high school, college, pull an all-nighter to pass a test? Try try to pass a test? All-nighter, yep. Lots of Mountain Dew and um, stay up all night and try to cram information into my brain. That's what we call it, cramming, right? Last minute, I procrastinated. I've got an 8 o'clock exam. I'm going to stay up all night. I'm going to try to mash as much information into my head as possible, hoping that it will stay in my head for at least about an hour and a half till I can get to the end of the test, and that's my only goal. And if we're honest, we, we would admit that 
cramming is a pretty ineffective way of studying. Uh, it, it got some of us through college, but it, it's, it wasn't really effective at studying. And, and it, it's almost useless in learning something. I'm just trying to get dates and historical figures and geography crammed into my brain for, until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. It's a pretty useless way of learning something, and it's a pretty useless approach to spirituality as well. He said, I'm just going to try to cram some Jesus thoughts in every once in a while. Once a week, I'm going to come and I'm going to sit. I'm going to try to cram some Jesus thoughts into my head. I'm going to try to learn some things about the Bible. Learning's great. We should keep learning. Learning's important. But if our approach to spirituality is, I just kind of want to stick some things in my brain so I know some things about the Bible and can have a conversation about Jesus, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to learn and then do. To learn and then obey. To learn and then be changed. Not just to cram more information in my head. The truth of the matter is, for most of us, we already know more about spirituality than we actually do. We've already learned plenty about who Jesus is and what he did and how he saw the world and how he spoke to people far more than we actually do. But being a follower, being a disciple, is being an adherent, being an imitator. This is a learner of who this guy was. I'm an imitator. I am trying to do what he would do if he were in my situation. Um, a, a little bit about me. I resist, when it comes to spiritual religion, Christian things... I resist the kind of trivial, trite sayings that we often come up with in Christianity. We put them on bumper stickers and bracelets and t-shirts and hats, and, and we sell a whole bunch of merchandise uh, with, with them on there. Or, or we post them on social media, right? We have memes of little short Christian sayings. Um, and just going to be honest with you, if you share those and ask people to repost them, I'm not going to repost them. Right? I like you. I'm not mad at you. I'm just not going to repost it. Because most of those I find reduce this great big concept of God down to like a really small, often not completely correct view of who God is and who Jesus is and what Christianity is. So I'm not going to repost those. Um, I'm probably not going to repost anything that you ask people to repost, but that's just me. That's not right or wrong, good or bad. That's just me. Now, I say all that to say that there is one of those, and I'm slightly embarrassed because it is one of the most overused sayings. It's on bracelets and bumper stickers and t-shirts and everything. No telling how much money this little phrase has made for people. The phrase WWJD, we've heard, we've all heard of that. What would Jesus do? Like even saying it sounds trite, but the reality is that's exactly what being a disciple is. I mean, if there's one of those sayings that maybe holds some merit, maybe holds some weight, Being a follower of Jesus is not just learning information about him, but it's me being in a situation and asking, if Jesus were in this situation, what would he do? If Jesus were in this conversation, what would he say? Or would he not say anything? I bring this up often. Sometimes Jesus didn't say anything. It's okay to not say something. 
Matthew 22, Jesus is asked about paying taxes. And it's a trap. Like the religious leaders are trying to get him to say something negative about the government. And if he doesn't say something negative about the government, then they think his followers won't like him. So they're trying to set him up. And, and so they ask, should we pay taxes or should we not pay taxes because it's Rome and Rome's evil and they're bad? And Jesus said, how about we all just obey the law? And then he moved on. He didn't talk about what system of government he preferred or whether there should be an IRS or what the income tax should be. He didn't get into any of that. He says, let's just all obey the law. How about that? And then he went back to talking about important things. Being a disciple is putting Jesus in the situation that I'm in and then doing whatever he would do. If Jesus saw what I just saw, what would be his next move? If Jesus heard what I just heard, what would be his next move? If Jesus was in the situation that I find myself in, what would be his next move? And then I'm just going to do that. Paul's writing to uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, uh, end of chapter 10, and he's discussing a lot of gray areas. You know, there's areas that there's not necessarily a right or a wrong or it's hard to determine could be this could be that I can make an argument both ways should we do this should we not do that and and Paul gives us some detail He, he fills in some blanks for them but then right at the end of that discussion Paul says follow my example as I follow the example of Christ how how about we do this Paul says in all of those situations I'm just trying to figure out what would be Jesus' response, and then I'm trying to do that? Why don't you try that? Why don't you do what I'm doing? I think if Jesus were in this situation, what would he say? And then I'm trying to say that. Why don't you do that? At the, at the end of chapter 10, he had pointed out, you know what? You all have rights. You all have preferences. And sometimes you're clinging to your rights. Like I have the right to do this. Yeah, but that may not be the best thing, Paul says. I have the right to say this. You have the right to say it. It may not always be the best thing for you to say. So here, let's boil it down. Why don't you just ask if Jesus would say that? Why don't you just ask if Jesus would do that, and then you do whatever Jesus would do? There are a lot of people, I think, who have a a fairly negative view of Religion and faith and church and, and Christians maybe in particular. Their immediate response to spirituality or, or, or to the Bible or to the church is a negative one. For whatever reason. Experiences they've had or just concepts they've developed in their mind. They've decided I'm an atheist and, and whatever. Just whatever. They have a particular view of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet I wonder how that might change if enough of us, if enough of us just decided every day, I'm just going to try to do what Jesus would do. I'm going to try to interact with people in the way that Jesus would interact with people. I'm going to try to say the things that Jesus would say to people. I'm just, I'm just going to imitate Jesus. Might some of that perception shift if only on a one-to-one basis. If somebody actually knew a real person who was just trying to imitate Jesus in their life, might that open a window 
for them to know God or meet Christ because they met a real person just, just trying to follow Jesus' example. You and I are not going to be perfect at this. Like It's not just going to magically happen after a Sunday service. We're not going to be perfect at this. But the life of following Jesus is one of continually becoming more like Him. Paul makes this statement in, um, in 2 Corinthians. He said, we're being transformed from glory to glory, some translations say it. Right? We're being transformed into the image of Jesus from one state of glory to another state of glory. And that's kind of weird language for us. We don't talk that way. What Paul was saying is, as you're following Jesus, as you're imitating Jesus, your life is going to begin to subtly shift into the person of Jesus. And it'll just be a few areas at first, but then the more you imitate Him, the more you follow His example, the more you speak with words that might come from Jesus, the, the more you act in ways that Jesus would have acted, then you're going to become a little more like Him and a little more like Him. You're going to be transformed. That's what He meant. You're going to be transformed from glory to glory. You're just going to keep getting more and more like Jesus. You're never going to be perfect at it. You're never going to be 100%. But you're going to continually conform more and more to the, people, to the person of Jesus. And, and, and I think, Maybe not globally, maybe not nationally, but in your area, in where you live, where you work, there may be some people whose view of God begins to shift because you decided, I'm just going to live closer to Jesus. I'm going to live out my life. I'm going to speak in ways that more closely align with the person of Jesus every day. Now, now what, is, what would that look like? Being transformed into the image of Jesus, I think, most often looks like love. If you just want to pick a word. Most often, being transformed into the image of Jesus, most often looks like love. Jesus is in the, uh, in the upper room. He's sharing the Last Supper with his followers. He's going to be arrested and betrayed and crucified. And here's one of the things that he says to them. He teaches them many things in the upper room. Here's one of the things he says in John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's going to be the distinguishing mark of the following followers of Jesus? Jesus said the distinguishing mark is going to be love. How well do we love other people? How consistently do we love other people? How extravagantly, how generously do we love other people? This is going to be the mark of whether we're becoming like Jesus, whether we are true followers of Jesus. And if you, if you read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what is striking is that Jesus treats everybody as if they deserve to be loved. Like when you read his story, he treats everybody as if they deserve to be loved, which, which probably means they deserve to be loved. He doesn't encounter people and then decide, is this someone I should love or is that someone I should love? He loves everybody 
as if they deserve to be loved. You and I should love everybody as if they deserve to be loved. Now, I, I know in one sense, maybe there's one part of your brain, some of you that are wrestling. I know in one sense, none of us, none of us deserve to be loved in the sense that we haven't earned God's love. I don't mean it that way. I just mean from the beginning of time, God put his love on people so people must deserve it. In, in his mind, he must think out of his abundant mercy, he must think these are my, this is my creation whom I not only created, I love. And Jesus loved people we probably wouldn't have loved. If you read his story, you find Jesus loving people and encountering people that you probably wouldn't have spoken to and I probably wouldn't have spoken to. We probably, would not, uh, probably wouldn't have let our kids be around. We pro- speaking of swerving around, there's probably a lot of the people that Jesus loved that we would have swerved around. Right? There was a woman at a well. She'd had multiple husbands. Kind of wrecked her whole life. She was an outcast from everybody in the city. That's why she was there by herself. And Jesus felt she deserved to be loved. His tax collector had been robbing people, a couple of them. Nobody liked them. Jesus said this person deserves to be loved. All the accusers had left, and Jesus is alone with a woman caught in adultery. That just seconds before a whole crowd was getting ready to kill, Jesus thought this person deserves to be loved. Jesus treated everybody as if they deserved to be loved. And every person that you and I meet this week deserved to be loved. Because every person you and I meet this week, they were created in the image of God. The breath of God brought them to life. Like every second, God is sustaining their life for some reason. They have an eternal soul. They are someone for whom God sent His Son to die for. Every person that you and I encounter, they not only deserve to be loved by God, they're already loved by God. Like God has already put his love on them. God desires to spend eternity with every person that you're going to meet this week. Every person that I'm going to meet this week. The question is not, do people deserve to be loved? The question is, am I an imitator of Jesus? And if I am, then I'm going to love. You see, when we ask the question... What would Jesus do? We're essentially asking the question, what would love do? We ask, what would Jesus do? I'm asking, what would love do? Because God is love, and Jesus is the ultimate expression of love. And every person that he encountered, he treated as if they deserved that love. Now, I realize that love is not a weak, sort of passive emotion. That's not what I mean by love. Sometimes it's hard to love. Sometimes love involves gentle confrontation and hard conversations. I just look at the life of Jesus and I see him again and again and again pouring out love. 
I realize that at the end of his life, Jesus turned over tables and chased the money changers out and, and, and revealed some righteous indignation, some righteous uh, anger. But honestly, if you read the four Gospels and your dominant image of Jesus is turning over tables, then I question your reading comprehension skills. Because what we see again and again and again is Jesus looking people in the eye and expressing love. See, being, being transformed in the image of Jesus is, is to love. But it's also how we treat individuals. Being transformed in the image of Jesus gets lived out in the way that we treat individuals. Jesus' mission, Jesus' calling, the calling of love, the mission of love is accomplished one person at a time. One person at a time. The, the, <clears throat> the encounters of Jesus that we most remember are the encounters that he had with individuals. When he was eye to eye with people. When it was just Jesus and one other person. His love wasn't expressed in the same degree with the crowds. He taught crowds of people. He interacted with thousands and hundreds. He, he taught. But the examples of love that most stick in our memory and in our reading of the Gospels is Jesus' encounters with individual people. You and I are going to most reflect who He is and what His love is like one-on-one, -on -one, person to person. Love doesn't get accomplished really in the macro. It gets accomplished in the micro. It doesn't get accomplished in the crowd. It gets accomplished in the one-on-one. -on -one. It's great to come to church and leave with an idea of we're supposed to love the world because we are. Or I'm supposed to love my neighbors. Or I'm supposed to love the people that I work with. Or I'm supposed to love my extended family. That's fine. But at some point, the question is not, am I going to love the world? The question is, who is the one person in my world that I need to show the love of Jesus to this week? Who is the one person in my neighborhood that I need to begin intentionally showing the love of Jesus to? Who's the one person in my office that may be hard to love? But because I'm trying to imitate Jesus, I need to show that person in tangible, real ways the love of Jesus. See, love gets accomplished from one person to another on the individual level, not the macro level. And as we imitate Jesus, He's calling us to be a reflection of His love to individual people. Not just some great concept of love, but real people. Eye to eye with real people. Now, it's impossible to be an example of the love of Jesus unless you've received the love of Jesus. I mean, you can do nice things for people. You can be kind to people. But to demonstrate the life-changing love of Jesus to other people, you have to have encountered that love yourself. There is no greater moment in your life, in any person's life, than the moment when they surrender their life to the love of Jesus. Because I can tell you, before you were born, 
God's love was on you. God's compassion and His mercy was for you. He has invited you into a relationship with Him. He has invited you into His love, and your response is only to receive that. Your response is to trust that God really did give His Son for you. In the eternal example of what love looks like, Jesus laid down His life for you. And if you're going to be close to Him, if you're going to walk with Him, if you're going to be a demonstration of His love to others, you've got to receive His love into your life. And if you haven't done that, start there today. Start with a surrender of your life to the one who loves you more than anyone else could possibly love you. And He loved you enough to send His Son so that you would eternally be loved by your Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you that through Jesus you have set your love on our lives. You have forgiven us of sin, that Jesus went to the cross. He rose again for us. And if there's someone here who hasn't put their faith in Jesus and received that love, I pray it be today for them. But God, then you send us out to be an example of that love. Our world desperately needs people who love with the love of Jesus. We don't need more slogans or bumper stickers or t-shirts or bracelets. We need people who will authentically and consistently love other people as if they deserve to be loved because they do. In the name of Jesus, amen.